Well, again, good morning. Good morning and welcome. Uh, my name is George Davis. Thank you for joining us, whether in person or online. Great to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible, I'm going to ask you to join with me in turning to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 in the New Testament. We will get there in a moment as we continue our journey through the life of Jesus Christ we're calling Love This Book. Now, if you're familiar, if you're familiar with the Second World War, you may recognize this picture. Thanks, Kayla. Uh, this is one of the most famous beaches associated with the Second World War. This is Omaha Beach in Normandy, France, one of the five beaches that were landing zones on D-Day in June of 1944. And if you're familiar with that story, you know perhaps that it was the largest seaborne invasion in history involving almost 7,000 vessels and over 200,000 military personnel. I enjoy, I enjoy the military history, particularly the history of the Second World War. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to stand on this beach with our three sons. And, and standing on that beach, obviously, I was aware of, of some of the numbers, the reality that I just shared with you. Also aware of the tragic loss of life experienced on that beach in June of 1944. But for me, it wasn't simply about experiencing world history. This was also a place of my family history. You see, I have an uncle who crossed that beach one week after D-Day in his service as a member of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And as I stood on that beach, I wasn't just thinking about all the big numbers and all the, you know, the, the enormity of this invasion. I was also thinking about my own family and the stories that my uncle told about his own military experience the stories that he told about crossing that beach in 1944. And for me, this beach, this beach is the place where World War II history intersects with my personal history, with my family history. Now, here's the reason I share that with you. In a couple of weeks, we are going to be celebrating Easter. And my guess is many of you, there may be kind of special ways in which you do that. Many of you, perhaps most of you, are going to be in Easter services, either here or elsewhere. For many of us, maybe there's, there's going to be a special lunch or there's going to be time with family, friends. Some of us will be traveling for Easter. There are all sorts of ways in which Easter is now on your calendar. But my question for you is this. Even as we are preparing to celebrate Easter, in what ways does the big story of Easter intersect with your individual story? Is there a connection? I mean, in what ways is the big story of Easter shaping your personal story? Are they connected or not really? As I said, we're, we're continuing our journey through the life of Jesus, and we're in the section of the storyline of Jesus' life where, where he is now moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards the cross. If you read Luke's gospel, this is the central section of Luke's gospel. And it begins in Luke 9.51 with these words. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And with that introduction, Luke tells the story of Jesus moving slowly to Jerusalem, slowly moving to the cross. 
slowly moving towards the reality of taking the weight, the punishment for all our sin, dying in our stead. But even as Luke tells the big story of the life and purpose of Jesus, even as Luke tells the big story of Easter, he also tells individual personal stories along the way. And and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at two of those personal stories that happen along the journey. And I think in essence what, what Luke is doing is this. Luke is showing us the way the big story intersects with these personal stories. And he's showing you and me, even today, how the big story, the big message of Easter can actually shape your story even now. To show you what I mean, we're going to come to these stories, and as we do, let me give you a little bit of background as, as we think about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. If you would look at, with me at this map, and if you look at the top, you'll see a body of water. This is Israel, body of water known as the Sea of Galilee. Throughout the series, we've talked about the fact that so much of Jesus' ministry took place along the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee in places like Capernaum. But as Jesus makes that final trek from Galilee to Jerusalem, he would have traveled primarily along kind of the the Jordan Riverbed, and if you look at the top, you see the Sea of Galilee, you look at the bottom, you see the Dead Sea, and what joins them, right, kind of cutting through the middle of that map is the Jordan River, and that would have been the, the journey that Jesus would have taken, kind of traveling through that valley, and when he got just north of the Dead Sea, if you look just northwest of the Dead Sea, you see the town of Jericho, and that's where, that's where you would take the road west going up to Jerusalem, and it's roughly 17 miles, and in that 17 miles, you're going to gain almost 4,000 feet in altitude. So this is one of the reasons why people always talk about going up to Jerusalem. So Jesus would have come down, traveled along kind of that river region, and then he would reach Jericho, and, and it's in Jericho that you make the turn for the final leg of the trip to Jerusalem. And in coming to Jericho, Jesus, Jesus would have come to a very affluent city. This is one artist's conception of what part of Jericho would have looked like. Uh, Herod the Great, the Jewish leader, uh, loved Jericho. He, he built palaces there. So there's a lot of money invested in Jericho. And as, as you think about this final journey of Jesus, as you think about the setting of the two stories we're going to look at, because they take place in and around Jericho, you also need to keep in mind that thousands of people would have been making this journey. Because remember, all of this is leading up to the Feast of Passover, this Jewish religious festival. And each year, thousands upon thousands of people would have, would have moved into Jerusalem for this festival. Scholars differ on exact numbers, but it, I think conservatively you can estimate that the population of Jerusalem would have grown by several hundred thousand during the the Feast of Passover. And many of those people, thousands of those people, would have been making their journey just like Jesus from Galilee down the Jordan River area, and then they would have turned at Jericho for that final leg into Jerusalem. So as we come to these two scenes, you need to understand how crowded Jericho would have been, how crowded the roads would have been, because thousands upon thousands of people are religious pilgrims. They're making that journey. And perhaps you can think about the last time you were in a big crowd, and of course maybe that was pre COVID, right? Maybe that was pre, 
that that was before the time we learned that phrase social distancing and you know think about maybe the last time you were in Hershey Park before COVID or maybe you know if you're a football fan think about the last time you came out of Beaver Stadium and just getting caught in the crowd so have that in mind as we now come to these two stories of Jesus's interaction with individuals along the road to Jerusalem. The first occurs at the end of chapter 18, and it involves a blind man. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, I I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. So the first scene, kind of along the road that we see right before Jesus gets to Jerusalem, as he's around Jericho, is the healing of a blind man. Then we come to a second scene in that same area. And this involves a more famous character. It involves the character known as Zacchaeus. And we always think about Zacchaeus as being what? The wee little man. How would you like to go through all of history and have that, that tag on you? Right. And we not only know Zacchaeus as a wee little man, we also know him as a tax collector. In fact, Luke says he was a chief tax collector. Now, as we come to this text, let me just give you a little more historical background because you need to understand, here's the way the Romans collected taxes. They outsourced the process. They sold tax collection contracts for regions. And the contracts went to the highest bidder. And the deal was, if you won the contract, Rome really didn't care how you did it. They didn't care if you overcharged people. They didn't care what you did as long as they got their money. As long as you met the contract, all of it was up to you. And there just wasn't a big concern. And as you can imagine, this led to a lot of abuse. It led to overcharging, the defrauding of people who lacked social status, social power. And tax collectors were not well viewed in Israel. They were widely viewed as, as traitors to their own people collaborators with the enemy. So that would have been Zacchaeus's story and how he would have been viewed by the people in his community. And so Jesus is coming to town, and then after the, the scene with the beggar, we see Jesus's interaction with Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming his way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody, which he had, if I had cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. 
So there's the big story of Jesus going to to Jerusalem, and and in that big story are these personal individual stories along the way, one involving a blind man and one involving Zacchaeus. Now, at first glance, when you look at these stories, these seem to be very different people. I mean, right? I mean, right? Here's this this blind man, a beggar sitting by the roadside, living on the, the generosity of other people. And undoubtedly, part of the reason he wanted to be on the roadside on this day was because so many people, so many thousands of people were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem and hopefully because they were in a religious pilgrimage, they would be generous. At the other end of the economic ladder, you, you have Zacchaeus. And we don't know details, but Luke says he's wealthy, and I think we can just presume because he was the chief tax collector that he was one of the wealthiest members of this community. We don't know exactly what that term means. It could mean that he owned the tax collection contract. It could be, mean that he was the lead partner in the contract. Or it could mean that he was the person designed or designated by the owner to exercise the contract. But in any case, he was a man of great wealth. So it's hard to envision two people who were totally different in so many ways than the beggar and Zacchaeus. And yet, I think as as Luke tells these stories, I think kind of in a subtle way, among other things, he highlights at least one thing they had in common. Even though they were very different, here's one thing they both had in common, and that is this. Both individuals needed to see. Now, obviously, that's clear with the blind man, right? That's why he's sitting by the roadside. He's... He can't see, so he needs the support of other people. And I think Luke is actually kind of emphasizing that with Zacchaeus as well. Because notice this. It is very unusual for the gospel writers to give us physical details about an individual. That's very unusual in the gospels. And yet here's this, what you might call minor character, right? He just shows up for a few verses, and we're given a very specific physical detail. We're given the detail he was short. That's highly unusual in the Gospels. But I think we're given the detail because Luke also wants us to give, uh, give us the detail. He was short, therefore he climbed the sycamore tree, and he climbed the sycamore tree because he wanted to see. Two very different individuals. And yet in reality, they both needed to see. As you think about that, remember how Luke introduces us to Jesus. As as Luke recounts the public ministry of Jesus, an early event that he highlights is Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth. Jesus reading from the scroll of Isaiah, reading words like, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, to free prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in many ways, we come full circle at the end of Jesus' public ministry right before he gets to Jerusalem. As Jesus deals with people who need to see. And I think on a fundamental level, this is part of what this text is communicating to us. We need to see. We need to see Jesus. Because when we can see him, we can truly see ourselves. When we see the reality of who he is and what he is doing, we can see ourselves 
It's people who need to be healed, to be restored. People who need to be liberated from the grip of sin. And Luke is saying, we need to see. We need to see that life isn't meant simply to be lived by ourselves, but it's meant to be lived in relationship with the one who created us and who can now restore us. We need to see. So Luke is telling us this global story, this big story of Easter. But along the way, he's telling these personal stories of people whose lives have been shaped by that message. And I think as we look at these stories, there's several things we can notice about how our our lives can be shaped by that bigger story. I think we can learn several things about what it really looks like to journey with Jesus. And so let, let me just highlight several of those for you. I think one of the things we see in these stories is this. I think we see, we see an awareness of need. There's just a certain awareness that we see in these stories. I mean, clearly the blind man is aware of his need. That's why he's seated on the side of the road trying to get help. But interestingly, he also seems to be at some level aware of the kind of unique work of Jesus. Because notice what happens, right? We've got these thousands of people coming through the streets of Jericho as he's seated on the roadside. And yet, even as he hears lots of people coming through, there seems to be some distinct commotion. And he says, what's going on? And he's told, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. But notice when he addresses Jesus, when he calls out for Jesus, he doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, Jesus, son of David. And that's something totally different because in using that language and using that terminology and using that imagery, he's using language rooted deeply in the Old Testament. He's using language associated with the idea of God's coming deliverer, God's coming Messiah, the one who would bring healing and restoration, the one who would bring about the promises made to Israel. So at some level, at some level, He has an understanding of things that have been going on in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's got an awareness of his need and and also an awareness that Jesus can do something. And then notice the interaction, right? He's caused such a commotion that Jesus says, well, bring him to me. And he looks at this guy and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now realize we can maybe hear that with a harsh tone. Right? You know, go like, okay, what do you want me to do? Or what do you want me to do? Right? You know, sometimes we can, we can hear a harsh tone in there, but I don't think that was the case. I think it was a very legitimate question. After all, remember, this guy has been seated to the roadside. He's been begging, asking for financial support. And my guess is he's, he's done well this day because people on the way to Jerusalem as part of this festivi- festivity, I think they would have been in a generous mood. This is part of their religious duty. So people would have been supporting him all along the way. And so now Jesus looks at him and says, okay, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do for you? Do you want me to, do you want me to give you money too? I mean, look, I've seen lots of people already go by and you've, you've done well today. Do you want me to just give you more money? Is that what you're asking for? What do you want me to do? says, I want to see. 
Jesus, have mercy on me. I want to see. This week, I, I was I'm in several conversations where we were talking through this passage, and in, in one of those conversations, this question emerged. It's kind of been rattling in my head for a couple of days, and so I'm going to share it with you and let you wrestle with it a little bit. The question was this. What, what would you say if Jesus asked you the same question? Right, if you, you had been the person, on, right, if you were kind of on the roadside. If you had this conversation with Jesus today, what would your answer be? I mean, if Jesus looked at you and said, okay, what do you want me to do for you? What, what, what would you say? Would would the conversation just be about stuff? You know, Jesus, it's been a, lot, a tough couple of years, and maybe you've gone through job transition, you lost your job, it would be great to get a raise, a promotion, or to have greater financial security. And understand, those are important things in our lives and important things to pray about, but, but would, would that be the extent of the conversation? What, what would that look like for you? Would the conversation go deeper? Would, would there be any sense in which you would look at him and say, Jesus, I want to see. I want to be open to your transforming work, your work of forgiveness, your work of renewal, your work that renews me to reality, the, the, your work that enables me to live beyond myself. What would you ask for? Now, I realize maybe you're, you're here and you would say, well, well, yeah, but George, you just said the blind man had some sense of who Jesus was, some sense of who, what Jesus could do, some sense of his identity, and maybe you would say, I'm just not sure about that. I don't, I don't know what I think about Jesus. And if that's the case, just, again, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part. Thanks for joining us online. But if if that's where you're at, let me just challenge you with the example of Zacchaeus. Because I I don't really think at this point Zacchaeus, I mean, at the start of the story, he doesn't really understand who Jesus is. But he's curious. I mean, he has all of these resources. He has financial wealth. But there's a curiosity that maybe there's more to life that I'm missing. Maybe there's something here that I need to pay attention to. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is, but he's going to climb the tree because he needs to see. And so if you're kind of there, let me just encourage you to to be open to exploring who Jesus is. And as a church, we'd just love to help you in that journey and help you think about what that looks like. So a part of journeying with Jesus, a part of kind of connecting the big story to our individual story is is awareness, awareness of our need and really awareness of what Jesus can do. There's a second part of of connecting the stories that I think you see here as well, and this is, again, a theme we see in both stories. That is the theme of persistence, the theme of persistence. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Just kind of imagine this scene. Again, remember, we've got hundreds, thousands of people moving through. It's noisy. You know what crowds are like. And somehow this blind man learns that Jesus is coming, and he starts yelling, right? 
And even with the crowd noise, he starts yelling in a way that seems disruptive or he's causing a scene and people are telling him to be quiet. And he just gets louder. Right? I mean, you talk about persistence. He just gets louder. Who knows how loud the scene had to be or, or you know, how, how selfless that was just to make a huge scene like that. But he's yelling loudly. There's a persistence here. In the same way, think about Zacchaeus, right? Of course, we're told he's short, and he, here, you know, there's big crowds, and, and people have even kind of come out because the word has, has gotten out that Jesus is coming through. And, and I, I can only imagine that part of the issue for Zacchaeus is he sees the crowds. I mean, knowing what people think of him, right? He's not the most popular guy in the neighborhood. Maybe it's not worth the effort trying to kind of worm your way through the crowd. That's just not going to go well. So he climbs a tree. Now, now you need to understand, for an individual of his social standing, at least in terms of wealth, to do that in this culture, that's just weird. Right? But, but he doesn't care. Of course, he has no idea that for generations people are going to sing about him as the wee little man, but he's just... He doesn't care. He's not, he's not into, he is, he is curious about seeing this Jesus and the curiosity drives him to persistence in following through. So there's, there is a, there's a persistence that we see in each of these scenes that we need to pay attention to. To highlight the importance of it, let me give you a con- contrasting story. If you go back earlier in the ministry of Jesus, there's a scene recorded in John chapter 6. This is kind of at the height of Jesus' popularity, and people just amazed at the things he can do, right? I mean, right, you, you know, you, you saw him feed the multitude with a little food. I mean, wouldn't that be attractive to you? I mean, imagine somebody goes home with you today and just does a miracle over your refrigerator. Wouldn't you like to have that person as a friend? I mean, come on, right? I mean, wouldn't that be of interest to you? And so Jesus has done these amazing miracles. He's healed the sick. He's cast out demons. And people are just enthralled with him early in his public ministry. But as time goes by, he begins talking to them, teaching them about what this journey of following him looks like. And all of a sudden, over time, he becomes less attractive to many people. And John 6 tells us there were people grumbling and saying, this is hard teaching. And over time, these people just, they just walked away. They just, there, there was no persistence. They, they just walked away. And that, that scene is very much in contrast to the persistence that we see here in Luke 18 and 19. And I think we need to understand this contrast and the importance of persistence because over time, if you seek to follow Jesus, there are going to be moments where you find yourself saying, you know what, this is hard teaching. Maybe moments where you wonder where he is or, or how's he, how can he be at work in this? I mean, even think about the, what we've gone through over the last couple of years. I realize for some of us, maybe it feels like no big deal now. That's in the past. But for others of us, you know, this has been hard. and There's been a sense of loss, frustration, and grief. And, I mean, for some of you, you know, there were, there, were, there were major events over the last couple of years that just looked differently 
You know, I've heard multiple stories about people in our church and family weddings and, you know, the wedding where, you know, people in the wedding party couldn't even come because they tested positive for COVID and, you know, all this last-minute craziness that people were having to deal with. And so these weddings weren't as planned and you go through stuff like that and there's a sense of loss and disappointment and maybe for some just a sense of, okay, so where's God in this? Can God really be at work in this? And maybe even for some, just the sense of, well, why should I take this seriously? My life's going to be complicated anyway. The truth is this. At some point, if you are journeying with Jesus, at some point, the journey will require persistence. If our individual stories are to be shaped by the bigger story of who Jesus is, there will be points where that will require persistence, even as we see in these two simple scenes. Furthermore, let me, let me identify another thing that I think we see at work here, and that is if, if, if our little stories are to be shaped by the big story, it will also require repentance. Now, we see this particularly in the story of Zacchaeus. We don't know all the details, right? Unfortunately, I'd love to hear more about what it was like when Jesus went home with him. What did that conversation look like? What, did, what, did, what are the details? But whatever that was like, you know, at the end of it, we see Zacchaeus saying, you know what? I'm going to give away half of my money to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone, which I have, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And what he's doing, he, right, he's, he's changing the course of his life. He is changing how he's going to deal with his resources. He's repenting. Now, I, I don't know what comes to your mind when, when I say repentance. Maybe for some of you, you think, well, repentance is what you do when you start the journey of following Jesus. When you convert to Christianity, you repent and believe, and that's true. Maybe for you, repentance is beating yourself up, or repentance is, is simply feeling sorry. I don't know how you think about repentance. Let let me define it this way. Repentance is reorienting my life to the reality of God's grace. Repentance is reorienting my life to the reality of God's grace. And it's not just the first step, right? It's an ongoing step. Interestingly, maybe you've heard of Martin Luther, the great reformer, who nails 95 theses, right, to the church door in Wittenberg. And you've probably heard of that. What you may not know is what was included in some of those theses. For instance, the first thesis thesis includes this statement, that Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, Luther says, look, the entire life of following Jesus is one of repentance. It's a recognition that repentance is not just the first step. It's it's an ongoing step because we're broken people in a broken world. And so that means there are going to be times in an ongoing way where we we need to reorient our lives to the reality of God's grace. And I think this includes being attuned to the attitudes, the actions, the patterns in my life that are inconsistent with the work of God's grace. For instance, maybe I'm condescending towards others or particular groups of people and pride has taken root in my life. I've I've lost sight of God's grace. Maybe I've been too stung by criticism or I've become a prisoner to the opinions of others and I've lost sight of God's grace. Maybe certain negative patterns or attitudes have kind of taken 
hold in my life as I think about myself or I think about other people and I've lost sight of God's grace. Maybe I've become overwhelmed by fear or anxiety and I've avoided certain people or certain task that I should face and I've lost sight of God's grace. But in Zacchaeus' life, right? I mean, he, he repents. That is, as he encounters Christ, I mean, Christ comes to his home and he encounters the reality of God's grace. He repents and that he, he reorients his life. He reorients how he's going to deal with his resources based on the reality that God's grace is now at work. And if, if we're going to journey with Jesus, right, if our personal stories are to be influenced by the big story, this, this will be part of our, our experience. This will be part of the process. And as it happens, I think there'll be one more element that we need to pay attention to, and that is this. <laughs> it's joy. Now, we see that clearly in the healing of the blind man. People rejoice when he is healed. But I think we also see it implied in the story of Zacchaeus. Because the text tells us that when when Zacchaeus, in essence, welcomed Jesus, and I think this is the idea of welcoming him into his home, he did so gladly. That is, he welcomed him with joy. And I think that's the context in which he gives back the money. Right? It was the joy of being with Jesus. And really, the, uh, the joy of being restored. Now I can imagine he's got a big house. He's got lots of money, but I think in so many ways it was often empty because undoubtedly due to his occupation, he would have been shunned by, by faithful Jews in the community. People would have looked at him and said, you're not really one of us. You have betrayed our nation. You have betrayed our people. You are a collaborator with the enemy. We will have nothing to do with you. And so there are people in the community, they, they would have nothing to do socially with Zacchaeus. And yet Jesus says, I'm, I'm coming to your house. And of course, people mutter, right? You shouldn't go to a person's home like that. And the grace of God invades Zacchaeus' life. The grace of God invades his home. And he experiences the wonder of God's renewal, God's forgiveness, God's restoration. And even at the end, Jesus looks at him. This man who has been shunned, this man who would have been viewed negatively by so many in the community, and Jesus looks at him and says, you are a son of Abraham. That's God's grace. And, and with that, I think there's, there's a joy. And I think ultimately what motivates Zacchaeus to reorient his life and to repent is this joy of being restored. Jesus said something similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show you this. Remember the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 6.22. The eye is the lamp of the body. Now notice that, right? Now notice again this theme of seeing and the importance of seeing well. We see that throughout Scripture. We see it in the teachings of Jesus. We see it rooted in kind of the promises of what God would do in Isaiah and elsewhere. So there's this importance of seeing. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Interestingly, Jesus intentionally uses a word here that can carry kind of a double meaning. And this word healthy also carries the meaning of generous or generosity. 
And so so I, think, I, think, I think what Jesus is getting at is, you know what, if you could really, if you really see, if you really understand, if you really live in the reality of my grace, it will overflow in joy and generosity. So here are two personal stories. Two stories that show us what it's like for our individual stories to be influenced, to be shaped, to be part of the bigger story of Easter. And I think we need to pay attention to these themes, right? We need to pay attention to, to the importance of awareness of who we are and who Jesus is, to the importance of persistence, repentance, and joy. Because if we're not careful, we may find ourselves in the crowd. Remember, we, we've referenced them throughout this morning, right? The thousands upon thousands of people coming out of Galilee, turning in Jericho, making their way up to Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of people engaged in religious activity, even to the point of, of making this religious pilgrimage. But thousands and thousands of people who didn't truly understand who Jesus was, and they didn't understand what he was doing. In fact, as it turned out, they were actually getting in the way. And you see that in both of these stories. It's the crowd that tells the beggar to be quiet. You see it in the story of Zacchaeus. It's the crowd that complains about Jesus going to his house. So don't don't be part of the crowd. Be someone who allows your story, your life, to be shaped by the bigger story of Easter. Be someone who journeys with Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, even as we've been going through the storyline of Jesus, we too are, are moving towards Easter and And I think most of us could even say, yeah, here are my plans for Easter. And for many of us, here's how Easter is going to look differently because we celebrate it with friends or family. There's going to be a special meal. And so we're going to be engaged in the activity of celebrating this big story. But in the midst of our celebrations, I pray that we would also understand that that big story is is to shape our personal, our individual stories. And for that to be true, for us to really journey with you, we're going to need to be aware of who you are and who we are. At times, we're going to need to be persistent in following you because we don't always understand what's going on around us. We're going to need to be open to reorienting our lives along the way to repentance because there, there are ways in which we get into patterns or habits that are simply inconsistent with the gift of your grace. And fathers, that happens may. May it create a certain sense of joy because we realize our personal stories are part of something bigger that gives our life depth, that gives us meaning, that gives us purpose, that gives us direction. Father, I pray this Easter we wouldn't simply celebrate the big story, but I pray the big story would interact and shape our story. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of our services this morning. At this time, I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to be available at the front. If there's a way we can pray with you, for instance, maybe you would say, you know, here's part of my life. Here's this pattern that really needs some reorientation, redirection to, to be aligned with the reality of God's grace. If we can pray with you about that or something else, we would love to do that. So our prayer team is going to be available. And now as we move toward Easter, I, I truly pray that as we move toward this celebration, that in, will, and in real and profound ways, the big story of Easter will even now shape and influence your personal story. Amen.